Well, please take your Bibles and find the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Even reflected in the songs that we sang this morning is the reality that the Christian life is not easy. We have an enemy who prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And we face afflictions and persecutions that can tempt us to give up, to abandon the faith. We can be tempted to love the world, to be encumbered by the deceitfulness of wealth or other earthly, worldly, temporal concerns. And no doubt most challenging in addition to these things is our own sin that impedes our progress in Christ. And in light of these challenges, it's no wonder that the New Testament writers refer to the Christian life as a race. A race that requires endurance and perseverance to complete. A race with a reward that we're told by Scripture only those who compete according to the rules will receive. It's a reward promised by God, but a reward that we can't touch, we can't currently see, we can't taste. It's a reward that only may be ultimately attained by those who continue to run by faith. The race of the Christian life is a race that is run by faith. That's why the whole of our lives in Christ can be characterized by Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when he says that we are those we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, faith can be one of those words in the church that everybody in church knows, but nobody can define. So just a few notes on faith. Biblical faith implies dependence. It implies dependence. It implies loyalty. It implies trust. It is trust in the promises and work of God. It is dependence on him to execute those promises. That's biblical faith. And the Old Testament, which Paul says was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement that comes through the scriptures, we might have hope. That Old Testament is full of profound examples of faith. And that's why we're going to look this morning at an example from 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, or really both of them, the, the Chronicles, if you will, together, the author of those works wrote to the Israelites who had returned to the promised land from Babylonian exile. It's called post-exilic, after the exile, after they had returned. And those returning faced troubles and disappointments. Remember hearing about this when we did our Minor Prophets series. Saren taught Haggai. There were others from that period where we learn of some of the troubles and disappointments that were faced by those who returned from Babylon. There were obstacles from without. They faced challenges that were external. There, were also, there was also lethargy and disobedience from within. And so the chronicler, the author of the Chronicles, wrote his theological history to exhort his readers 
to trust the Lord, to seek the Lord, to have faith. He wrote to engender faith in this post-exilic community who was struggling. And he wanted the people to know that the God of their fathers was unchanging and that that God had not abandoned his covenant purposes to his people. Across the centuries and across the different kings in Judah, especially that you read about uh, in 2 Chronicles, God had blessed faithfulness and he had also punished wickedness. And those who had returned to the land needed to hear that. They could expect the same. Those who walked in unfaithfulness could expect to face consequences for their infidelity. And yet God remained a rewarder of those who walked in faithfulness, trusting him and his promises. Some who returned may have abandoned him, but he had not abandoned them, and he had not abandoned his covenant purposes to them. And so the chronicler writes to say, God rewards those who seek him. King Jehoshaphat stands out in Judah's history as one of the few good kings. If you've read through any of the history, the kings, 1 and Kings, 1 and Chronicles, there's a lot of bad kings. And there's a few good ones, and none of them are perfect. But Jehoshaphat stands out. We're told, starting in 2 Corinthians 17 of his reign, that he secured Judah against his wicked cousins in the north. That is the ten tribes of Israel that his reign was successful. But what the writer really wants us to see is not only that his reign was successful, but why? Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse three. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again removed the high places and the ashram from Judah. Jehoshaphat was a God seeker. He sought the Lord and he sought his commandments and his brand of leadership as we will see, exhibits vital faith. He sends, we're told, teachers throughout the land with the book of the law to instruct the people in the ways of the Lord. He was one who heeded the words that David had first uttered to Solomon that we read in 1 Chronicles 28, when David said, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Jehoshaphat was a character, had the character of, of a king that David had prescribed to his son. He sought the Lord and he sought his commandments, and he was established in the land. Listen to verse 10 of chapter 17. Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. He was established by God because he was a God-fearer, a seeker, a faithful king. But he wasn't perfect. And if you're familiar with the story, and you go from 17 into 18, 
he makes a bad decision. And chapter 18 actually recounts this bad decision that would go on and have lasting ramifications in the life of the Davidic line and cause all kinds of trouble after Jehoshaphat had passed off the scene. He makes a marriage alliance with Ahab, the king of Israel. Again, the 10 tribes of the north. The same 10 tribes, the same place that earlier in 17 we read he had, he had fortified himself against in obedience. Remember, he was seeking, he fortified himself against those tribes. Now he's in a marriage alliance. So as a result of this, Ahab asked Jehoshaphat and Judah to join him in this battle, and he agrees. Quite a scene unfolds as the two kings are together, and Ahab's sort of in-house false prophets, 400 of them, proclaim a victory. And Jehoshaphat, being a God-fear, although seemingly confused in this instance, he asks for an actual prophet. And that actual prophet comes and prophesies Ahab's death and the failure of this endeavor that they're going to undertake together. The story goes on. Ahab tries to escape judgment. Jehoshaphat is almost killed, but he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. As the author ironically puts it, the chronicler, a random arrow, a random shot finds the soft spot in Ahab's armor, and Ahab dies in accordance with the prophecy, even though he was trying to do his best to put himself out of harm's way. And he dies in fulfillment of the prophecy from Micaiah. Chapter 19 opens with a prophet of the Lord taking Jehoshaphat to task for his faithless decision to help Ahab. Now, the chronicler never tells us why Jehoshaphat went up to help Ahab. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says that Jehoshaphat was long on piety and short on sense. And I actually, I think he's right. We're not given the reasoning. Whatever it was, the prophet Jehu comes and he brings divine perspective. This seer goes out, 19 verse 2, to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? In other words, Jehoshaphat's alliance was nothing short of treason against the Lord. And so he's soundly rebuked by the prophet, but he's also graciously restored. Verse 3 of chapter 19, there is some good in you. He said, for you have removed the Asheroth from the land, and again we hear this, you have set your heart to seek the Lord. After this correction, Jehoshaphat responds faithfully. He goes back through the land once again, calling the people to seek the Lord. He appoints judges and priests and calls them to faithfulness and to exercise their role with faith in the land, leading the people appropriately. Verse 6 of chapter 19, he said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Down in the end of verse 11, he told those officers, act resolutely and the Lord be with the upright. So you see his character again in leadership as he's planting his officers in the land and again calling them to seek the Lord and to exercise justice that pleases the Lord among the people. So Jehoshaphat's back on track. And sometime after these reforms, as we come to chapter 20, Jehoshaphat faces a crisis. Verse 1 of chapter 20, it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the 
Meunites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hezazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. So a vast army is marching on Jerusalem. And if we're reading through the narrative starting in chapter 17, the question comes, how are they going to respond? How would Jehoshaphat and his people respond this time to this harrowing situation, this challenge? Would he make another alliance with the wicked cousins that he had made an alliance with earlier to help them? Would he try to strike a treaty with the invaders? Well, verse 3 gives us our answer. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat's response exemplifies vital faith. His response to this crisis demonstrates vital faith. We read earlier what the writer to the Hebrews tells us, that without faith it is impossible to please God, for the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And in the face of this trial, Jehoshaphat and the people are described multiple times as those who are seeking the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews wrote those words to a group of individuals that were confronted with the difficulty of the Christian life and were in danger of turning away, in danger of turning to an easier path. And one way that that writer encourages them to keep on, to press on, to remain in the faith, to continue in their pursuit of their reward is by giving examples of Old Testament saints who had trusted God for the reward that he had promised. And really, that's, that's my aim this morning, is to look at the faith of Jehoshaphat and to consider it a powerful example of vital faith that actually encourages us to continue to walk in vital faith, to pursue the Lord, seeking him and his promises. So we're going to consider Jehoshaphat's response to this crisis, and we're going to make five observations about vital faith that stimulate vital faith. So the observations are about vital faith, that is someone else's, Jehoshaphat's and the people's. And the intent of looking at those and making these observations is to stimulate our faith, to stimulate vital faith in our race, if you will. And the first observation comes from the opening four verses that we've already read. That quite simply is that a vital faith responds to crisis by seeking God. The author wants us to see that Jehoshaphat and the people responded to this crisis immediately by seeking God. Seeking is a very important theme in the Chronicles. It means much more than simply asking for advice. It's devotion. It's loyalty. It's trust. It's used throughout to differentiate between the unfaithful and the faithful kings. The unfaithful kings were the ones who didn't seek or turned away. The faithful kings are the ones who sought the Lord. It's important to know that, yes, Jehoshaphat is afraid, but he's immediately inclined to seek the Lord, and that's the wording of the text. It, he is afraid and seeks. That's the idea. He's not fearful. Then he gets his counselors around. It's not fear where the people are shown as shaking in the wind and then trying to make their own arrangements like Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 8, 7 and 8. This is, he's afraid, and the response to that is 
seeking. His disposition is automatically toward the Lord. And the response of the people after him is also noteworthy. And I believe that the earlier reforms that we alluded to in chapter 17 had really prepared the nation to respond this way. They had been nourished on the sound words of the faith. Jehoshaphat had sent people out to teach and instruct the people in the ways of the Lord, to engender faith. And so when this crisis comes, the groundwork had been laid and faith that already existed was manifest. It was given an opportunity to show itself. Times of difficulty reveal the validity or the invalidity or the vitality or the weakness of our faith. Jehoshaphat sought God. That was his first inclination. He sought God, and he's an example for us to say, what is our first inclination when faced with trial, when faced with difficulty? Is it to seek the Lord? And this initial response of seeking then sets the course for the whole rest of the story. All the remainder of this this scene, this narrative, is directed by the fact that he had set his heart to seek the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God made a promise to Solomon that said this, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Jehoshaphat believed that. He believed that God would help those who seek him. And so he proclaims a fast and his kingdom unites in this act of humble devotion to seek the Lord's help. Now, having sought his help, having determined to seek the Lord and to lead the people in seeking the Lord, this this seeking of Jehoshaphat takes shape starting in verse five. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance? O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Our second observation about vital faith that stimulates vital faith is, vital faith seeks God in dependent prayer. Vital faith seeks God in dependent prayer. Jehoshaphat's seeking had a specific direction, right? It was the Lord himself, and it took shape. It was prayer. It was humble, dependent prayer. And this prayer, as we just read, this marvelous prayer. It deserves a sermon some other time. It deserves your 
your contemplation. It's an example for us. But for now, I want you to notice just a few elements in this prayer of a man who believes the one who he's praying to. First, note that he exalts God's supremacy over the nations. He exalts God's supremacy over the nations. And that's relevant because both for carrying out his purposes in Judah and also for the forthcoming request to help him against the invading nations, it's pretty important that the one he's praying to for help controls the nations. And so he affirms God's supremacy over the nations. He then recalls God's mighty acts of giving his people, his covenant people, the land in keeping with his promises to Abraham. That's when he says in verse seven, did you not drive out the inhabitants and give this to your friend, Abraham? Evoking the covenant relationship that they had together. And that's relevant because in this circumstance, the enemies actually wanted to drive them from the land. That was the point. And so what the enemies were coming to do was going to violate or invalidate, if you will, God's promise. And so he calls God's attention to the promise that they would be established in the land. He then appeals to the promises of God to respond to the cries of the faithful. That's what's happening in verse eight and nine. He's actually quoting Solomon and Solomon's prayer of de- that he made at the dedication of the temple when he makes that wonderfully devoted and humble prayer, repeatedly saying, Lord, if this happens and when your people do this, please be gracious and merciful to forgive them and save them from their troubles. And that's what Jehoshaphat is asking of the Lord. He then identifies the particular unrighteousness of the invaders and appeals to God's justice. That's what we have when he talks in verse 10 and following. These peoples had been spared during the Exodus, during the conquest, when the, Moses and the people were coming up the Transjordan and God wouldn't let them attack these very people. They had been spared. And yet now, Joshua says, look, they're not returning that kindness. The people who you were kind to by telling us not to destroy, they're actually the ones coming to get them, right? That's unjust. And he calls for God's justice. And then lastly, and really profoundly, he just plainly shows the desperation of the situation in prayer. And he makes this humble, dependent plea to the one that he needed help from, the only one that they were going to trust for the deliverance that they needed. I mean, verse 12, will you not judge them? For we're powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. And then this, right, some of our life verse, we don't know what to do. And our eyes are on you. It gets no more humble than that. He's completely removed of all hope from self. He has no opportunity to correct what's happening. He says, we don't know what to do. But in faith, in a sweet expression of dependence, he says, but our eyes are on you, Lord. And that memorable verse expresses the essential character of vital faith. Rather than turning elsewhere, the king of Judah and the people put their eyes on God, trusting his goodness and resting solely on him for what they needed most. Look, and that's a parallel of what everybody who's saved by the Lord Jesus Christ has done that's in this room. You can do absolutely nothing to save yourself from your sins. You're solely dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know what to do to rescue yourself from eternal condemnation. And so you throw yourself on Christ. That's faith. It's dependent 
It's humble. Now there's much in this prayer for us to imitate. I just mentioned prayer, right? Everybody gets nervous. Palms get sweaty. Is this gonna be convicting? Of course it's convicting. It's prayer, right? It's what Pastor Rick always says. Evangelism and prayer guarantee conviction anytime they're mentioned, especially from the pulpit, right? But what we see from this is not simply that we need to pray and we do, and that we need to pray like this and we do, but it's that seeking is not this shapeless idea. To seek God is not simply thinking grand thoughts of him. Jehoshaphat's seeking drove him toward prayer. It drove him to go to the very one that he needed help from, the one who, for us, has given us access in Christ and assurance that he's listening to our pleas. And so we have to ask, if we claim faith and claim a vital faith, do we pray? And do we pray with a right estimation of our great need for God's help? That's what Jehoshaphat did. He led his people in dependent prayer, and that demonstrated his vital faith. And the faithful had shown their trust in God by seeking him at the throne of grace. They confessed their utter inability, and they made their request known to him. In verse 13, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. That is, no one knew what to do, reading that back up into verse 12. Not just the army and not just the king. Then in the midst of the assembly, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. So as the people waited, the spirit of God comes upon a Levite who's going to proclaim the Lord's response. Verse 15, and he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. God's response to this prayer of dependence addresses the very hearts, the very needs, the very felt needs of the people standing before him. They were afraid, and so they respond in seeking. What's the first word from the Lord? Don't be afraid. It's not an empty, hey, calm down. He's saying, don't be afraid, don't worry. And then he gives the reasons why they're called to shirk this fear, because evidently they're gonna be bystanders. They're gonna be onlookers for this, for this battle. They're going to be spectators. The Lord is going to do their fighting for them. Incredibly, he says, the fight is God's. They won't need to fight. And don't fear because the Lord is with you. Language here is used from other areas in the Old Testament. This is just as when the Israelites stood silent and watched the Lord destroy the pursuing Egyptians in the Red Sea. All Judah would stand and see the salvation of the Lord. That's the same language that's used there, stand and see their salvation. The word of the Lord came to the people in response to Jehoshaphat's prayer, and they're really called now to believe the unbelievable. They're not going to raise a finger. This vast multitude is marched against them, is maybe some 20 or 30 miles away, and God says, don't fear because I'm gonna fight in your stead. 
verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Kurahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. So they respond to this unbelievable promise with worship, with humility before him, reverence in that posture. And then the Levites burst into song. And that's our next observation for vital faith. Vital faith rejoices in God's promises. A vital faith rejoices in God's promises. Don't miss the fact that they're responding this way before it has happened. The word comes to them that the Lord is going to fight on their behalf and they respond in humble reverence and worship. And that's vital faith. That is an example of the conviction of things not seen. It hasn't happened yet. They had not seen God deliver the Israelites across the Red Sea. They had no doubt read of it, heard of it. They had not yet seen God fight on their behalf, but they believed. They trusted the one who said that he would do this. And they rejoiced over that promise of the Lord. Look, that's emulated when you and I sing of our future eternal reward, when we rejoice over the promises of God. And this is a reminder, it's an example to us that in times of trouble, the promises of God's word, that is what should turn lament into rejoicing. And I don't mean sort of fake, phony, put on a happy face, but the content of God's promises should cause us to respond in prayer. That's the response of our praise. That's the response of vital faith. Praise, worship, the one who says that he's going to do what you need him to do. God's been so kind in preserving his word for us. How many promises of God do we have in his word? That's what should fuel our worship, especially in times of need, especially in times of difficulty. We can hear his promises, we can read his promises, and we can rejoice in faith that the one who said he's going to do something is able to do what he said he will do. So they receive this promise of salvation. They rejoice humbly, and then they wake up and get on with what the Lord had called them to do. Verse 20, they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. So the word of the Lord through the prophet said, you're gonna go up tomorrow. And so the first thing in the morning, faithful Jehoshaphat and his crew, they they wake up early and they're on the move. They're responding in faith. And then Jehoshaphat delivers this final exhortation to the people. And this final exhortation actually is gonna be our fourth observation. And that's that a vital faith puts its trust and hope in God and his word. Vital faith puts, sets its trust upon, puts its hope in God and his word. 
But considering the night before that they had rejoiced in this promise that God had given, this, this exhortation from the king may seem redundant, but faith was still required, right? It hadn't happened yet, right? Now's actually, the moment of testing is approaching. They're up early in the morning and they're gonna march. And they're gonna march to where this vast multitude is gathered and they needed faith. It's reasonable to assume that on the day of battle, nerves may have kicked in, right? Doubt may have started to creep in as they walked toward the wilderness. And so Jehoshaphat's words are an exhortation toward continued faith. And the emphasis in these two exhortations from him is on the objects of faith. Interesting. It's on the objects of faith. That is God and the prophet who communicated God's word. As the battle draws near, God was to be the focus of their trust. Still, faith in him. He was their means of being upheld. Trust him, that's how you'll stand on this day. That's the sense of what he's saying. And then he also adds to that exhortation, not only trust God, but trust in the divinely appointed spokesman who conveyed his word. That would be the means of success. In other words, like you see throughout the history of the Chronicles, don't turn from the prophet of the Lord and his word. Trust it, believe it. That's how you'll have success. Again, faith in this story is emphasized. As they arrived at the battlefield, confidence in their armor, confidence in their numbers, or confidence in anything else, right, would have been worthless. All confidence and trust and dependence was to be on the Lord. Their only hope in this scenario and the way that it's framed up for us was to believe that the God who said he would deliver them will make good on what he promised through the prophet. It's hard to pick out a high point in this story, but I'm partial to Jehoshaphat's exhortation in these verses. It's a watchword for us in a day of countless voices countless avenues for us to set hope on, to set hope in, to set trust on, however you wanna say it. We have countless voices vying for our trust. We have countless resources vying for our trust. The people of God since Genesis 3, it's as old as sin, have been tempted to trust in everything else except the Lord. Financial savvy, healthy living, status at church, I mean, come up with it, name it, we can trust it, the deceitfulness in our hearts to find something, to find confidence in other than where the Lord has told us is strong. And that's why the scriptures repeat, repeatedly warn us against that. Jeremiah 17, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. But on the contrary, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. 
The reason that dependence is emphasized as it is in Scripture is because we're so easily swayed to depend on everything else other than the Lord whom we're called to seek. And the example of Jehoshaphat is that of utter dependence and seeking of the Lord and being established and blessed like a tree planted by the water in response to crisis, not withering in his faith when difficulty comes. Our ultimate security before the Lord is not found in our own intuition. It's not found in our own strength. It's found in dependence on him and trust in his message. Now, having given this exhortation, Jehoshaphat takes counsel with the group, and then he appoints singers to lead the battles. I just said my favorite verse was verse 20, 21, Pastor Aaron's favorite verse is coming up. The singers are called to, to lead this charge out toward the battlefield. And the content of their praise is this familiar line from throughout the Old Testament, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Imagine they're, they're marching toward this battle area where there are multitudes and they're singing, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. The comment there on praised him in holy attire isn't talking about what the singers were wearing, but their praise of God that he's in clothed in majestic splendor or holiness. They appropriately praised, isn't this interesting, the, the essential character of God. The character of God that moved him to actually deliver them, his covenant people. His gracious, compassionate, enduring love. And I just find it interesting that they're not singing and ascribing praise to his power, to his outstretched arm that's going to wreck the armies that are there. They're actually praising him for what he's doing on their behalf as they march. Verse 22 tells us that when they began singing and praising the Lord, that the Lord acted. He intervened right then. Verse 22, they began singing and praising. The Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. It's somewhat difficult to imagine the scene. You've got this army of Judah marching out with people singing glory to the Lord. And as soon as they start singing, chaos breaks out amongst the enemies. And when they get there, they're decimated. The music here was likely to invoke this idea of song accompanying the Lord as he went out in holy war on behalf of his people. We see trumpets and other things that are blown in the day of the Lord's scenes for judgment, announcing judgment, and even salvation. When the army reaches the appointed place, they looked on the battlefield and saw all their enemies destroyed. They stood and saw the salvation that the Lord had promised. Verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground and no one had escaped. Complete victory and they never lifted a sword. In fact, they weren't even there when everything started happening. They were singing. They were praising the God who was about to deliver them. Verse 25 makes clear that there was lots of spoil left over. And the point of that is the, em the emphatic nature of the victory. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil. 
because there was so much. The author wants us to see that the Lord's victory was complete in every respect. So four days after the battle, verse 26, after the spoil had been collected, the people gathered in the valley of Barakah and they praised the Lord. Remember, they had worshiped upon hearing God's promise and now they worship after actually receiving it and seeing it. The conclusion of the story comes in verses 27 through 30 and that will be our final observation, which is that a vital faith is rewarded in accordance with God's good purposes. A vital faith is rewarded in accordance with God's good purposes. Verse 27. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps, lyres, and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. Now there's an important connection here with the earlier years of Jehoshaphat's reign that actually make the point the Chronicler wants to make. Remember back in chapter 17, verse 10, that his early seeking of the Lord, that his faith, his vital faith demonstrated in his faithfulness had resulted in the dread of the Lord being on all of their enemies. Verse 10 of chapter 17, now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. And now again, after this story that demonstrates Jehoshaphat's faithful seeking of the Lord in this time of crisis, what do we read? That the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies and that his kingdom was at peace and that God gave him rest. This is important to the purpose of this story to show the dramatic blessings that the Lord gave his people when they sought him. That's one of the chief emphases of the chronicler. When Jehoshaphat made unwise alliances with God's enemies, he experienced failure and hardship. But when he was faithful, he experienced the reward of God. And likewise, for the downtrodden former exiles coming back to Jerusalem 400 years before Christ, God could be trusted to be a rewarder and faithful to those who sought him. And for the downtrodden in this room, the same message applies. God is faithful to those who seek him. God rewards fidelity. Again, Hebrews eleven six. We must believe, if we're to have faith that pleases God, that he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, sometimes we wrestle with this reality. If faith is rewarded, why don't we have all that we desire? Or why must we still struggle in this life against sin and other entanglements that hinder our run in this race? Well, first, it's important to note that God's promises to his covenant people included this rest within the land that he delivers to them when they're faithful. He was faithful to give that when his people sought him, like Jehoshaphat, but that was temporary. And we see that throughout the storyline of the Old Testament kings. It was temporary because of sin. They'd never had their perfect king and the perfect reign of righteousness. 
But he did promise rest when they sought. And when they did, he delivered on that promise. And what has he promised us? He hasn't promised us every one of our desires, certainly, thankfully. He hasn't promised us ease in this life. Yes, this life is attended by blessings and manifestations of his goodness and his mercy to us that we experience and that we taste. But he's not promised of, that's not the grand promise of the Christian life, right? The promise is eternal life. The promise is the reward that we have at the end of the race. Some of the examples in the Hebrews Hall of Faith were rewarded differently than others. Enoch didn't die while others suffered, but all trusted God until the end for the promise that went beyond their temporal life. And for those in Christ, the reward that we're promised for running the race is beyond this life. God is a rewarder for those who seek him, but we won't taste the fullness of that reward now. The promise is for then, final victory, final rest, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, eternal life with Christ, with the Lord, with one another. And that's the ultimate promise that is to be sought by faith. And a vital faith runs the race looking for that reward because God is faithful to reward those who seek him. And eternal life is the reward for those who run to the finish line. You may feel a long way from Jehoshaphat this morning. What do, you do, what do we do with this story beyond what we've discussed already? Just a couple closing thoughts. One, take courage and be reminded that seeking God in faith is not done in vain. Seeking God in faith is not done in vain. This story makes that clear. The same God that delivered Jehoshaphat has given us Christ. And he calls us to trust him to the end. And his reward is great. Take courage in that. Be reminded of the faithfulness of God to reward his people when we see that example of those in scripture. Also, take seriously your role in encouraging vital faith in your brothers and sisters here at MRBC. We sing, we run this race together. We're almost home together. And we need one another to point one another toward the reward. A couple aspects of this. Encourage one another to obey. Vital faith expresses itself as obedience. We love our neighbors. We love one another. We turn from gossip and grumbling. We walk in sexual purity. We humble our arrogant attitudes because we believe God's word, because we have faith that his ways are better than the ways of the flesh. And we've been enabled by his grace to walk in those ways. On the flip side, unchecked patterns of disobedience reveal a lack of vitality in our faith and actually show the danger that we face in turning from the walk that he set before us. So encourage one another to obey as you encourage one another to continue. And as we said, encourage one another to look toward our eternal reward. Even after all we've experienced of Christ in this life, the Lord's promises can seem at times unbelievable. And we need one another. And the Lord uses each of us in the lives of one another to help us walk and believe what in the weakness of our flesh can seem unbelievable. And lastly, look to an even better example than Jehoshaphat. 
Jehoshaphat would experience another lapse of judgment just a little bit further on in the chapter. He provokes God to intervene again because he made another ill-advised agreement with somebody and the Lord steps in, crushes his plans, which is a grace. But Adam read for us earlier, our supreme example, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who perfectly endured to the end of his race and received his reward. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, after the hall of faith, we're to look to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why should we consider? So that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Vital faith is spurred on by considering Christ. Jehoshaphat's a good example. Consider him, but consider Christ far more. He's our supreme example, and he's given us grace to run the race that he's called us to run. Just a moment, I'm gonna close the service in prayer, and Jim Mitchell, one of our elders, and his wife, Teresa, are gonna be at our prayer room. If, if you'd like them to bear a burden with you in prayer, if you'd like to just talk to the someone. Please don't hesitate to greet them after the service. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk with you. Grab someone around you. Grab one of the pastors or elders that are around. Don't leave if you need to talk about something or if you need to pray about something. Father, we thank you for the examples that you've given us in Scripture that both pull us forward and push us forward and help us to consider the path that you've called us to walk in and to run in. Use these, these words, these words of Jehoshaphat, this example that you've given us to engender our faith and hope and trust, believing that you are a warder and that you will reward us on that day when our race is finished. See us through with faithfulness. Use us in the lives of one another to keep one another faithful. And we ask all these things in our Savior's name, amen.